So today, as I said, is our first uh, event in M Pavilion. We opened uh, yesterday, Hi. and we're very lucky to have uh, three special guests with us today. Um, the, as far as the event, we're going to run it as a, as a bit of a question. I'm working with Natalie King. Uh, Natalie is the curator. Hello, can everyone hear me? N yes. Now we can. Good. Yes. Uh, Natalie is curator, looking after the uh, mainly the visual arts component of M Pavilion. Um, Natalie, of course, is a, a curator. Uh, is currently uh, curated the Tarawara Biennale. Um, so if you haven't seen that, please go and see it. Um, but yes, so for today, we have three guests. Um, one we'd like to call M Pavilion's muse, uh, Julia Payton Jones from Yay. the Serpentine Gallery. Yay! Uh, Naomi Milgram, who of course is the patron of this project um, and established the Naomi Milgram Foundation to support contemporary design and architecture. Um, and this is the first project of the foundation. Um, And thirdly, the inaugural architect of this beautiful space, Sean Godsell. Um, Natalie's going to explain the, the, the process for tonight. Waminjika uh, and welcome to M Pavilion. It's great to see so many familiar faces in the audience on a mildly damp Melbourne evening. Uh, as Robert mentioned, this is our first M Talk, which is a series of talks that will unfold on Tuesday evenings um, throughout the cycle of the pavilion. These are conversations at the intersection of architecture and design, and we really hope that you can come along for some of the other talks that we have scheduled, um, and they're listed on our website. So M Pavilion, um, we're really interested in open conversations, in asking questions when we don't necessarily know the answers. But we also thought that we would give tonight some structure and decided to divide the conversation into three segments. And these are pavilions, parklands and paradise. So we will have a conversation with our panellists um, about each of these um, vignettes or segments and there'll be opportunities for questions in between each segment but also at the end. And we're really happy that um, M Pavilion is a, an informal space and a space to gather and a space for conversation. Thanks Natalie. So firstly I thought we'd start with Julia. Um, Julia. I'm sorry. Julia uh, is, uh, is currently, uh, it's the 14th iteration of the Serpentine Pavilions, which you established in 2000. Um, Julia's pavilions, of course, have been a, a roll call of some of the most important architects um, in the world, uh, including Oscar Niemeyer, Rem Koolhaas, um, Zaha Hadid and Frank Gehry. Um, They've become a major part of the London scene. But, Julia, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how it all began. Well, firstly, thank you very much for having me, Naomi. Thank you Pleasure. to all of you who've been so generous in your reception. Uh, it's been really a privilege to be here for, for, on this great occasion. Um, we, the real truth about the Serpentine Pavilions is that we had a 30th anniversary um, 
the Princess of Wales was our patron in the 90s, and as you know, she died in a car crash. And just before uh, she was about to be the guest of honor at a, a gala dinner, so we canceled that. And 18 months later, we decided to ho host, do a dinner for our 30th anniversary. By that time, we'd obviously lost our patron, but we'd also lost our principal sponsor, Vanity Fair. And the reason I tell this story is that life is so often about pragmatics and coming up with a solution that uh, necessity, I think, is the mother of invention. And uh, we decided to use the budget that Vanity Fair had um, allocated for the hire of a tent to commission an architect to design a temporary structure. And the architect we chose was Zaha. Uh, and the budget was £100,000. Now, we are, the Serpentine Gallery is in a royal park. And royal parks, and I'm sure it applies to this park, have restrictions. And restrictions mean that there are very many lists of do's and don'ts. And one of the do's and don'ts was that we could never have a sculpture installed for more than a month, including the installation and deinstallation. So it practically meant that anything was impossible. What happened on the gala dinner, so we had our lovely structure and we worked on it and it was very, very exciting and um, it all was well. What happened at the gala dinner was the Secretary of State for, Sculpture, uh, for uh, Culture, Media and Sport was there, who was responsible for the Royal Parks. He was a great fan of Zaha Hadid. And I asked him at that dinner whether we could have the pavilion up for more than a night, which was all that we'd been given permission for. So when he said yes, we quickly installed a cafe. It was open for six weeks. And that really was the launch of the pavilion. Now, it's a long story, and one which is kind of fascinating to me, but maybe not to all of you. But the, really point, the point is that if we'd started, if I'd been clever enough, or anybody at the Serpentine had been clever enough to say in 2000, we are going to do an annual architecture commission with no money, uh, without any expertise, and we're going to do it for 14, 15 years, I'd have said, absolutely no way. But because it was a kind of organic process, it meant that it kind of sat well. And I mean, this is really what I think um, has happened with this pavilion, because we're here to talk about this pavilion, not our pavilion. Um, this is really Naomi's inspiration and Sean's brilliant design is about something that feels absolutely right here. And that's, that is the key. Naomi, I wonder if you can elaborate on your inspiration for the pavilion. Was there like an epiphany moment or what were the circumstances that led you to develop M Pavilion? Well, while Julia's being very generous with her words, um, she really was my inspiration. And I never knew about the original story of what had happened. I always thought this was an event that actually went on for four months, exactly as we're going to go on for four months. So my inspiration was definitely Julia and the Serpentine and what she did for design and architecture with the Serpentine Pavilion. It's now, I don't know, one of the top five events in the world for design and attracts a quarter of a million people annually. That's what we would love to do here. Um, and so really Julia and the Serpentine were my inspiration. And there was no epiphany moment. I've been watching her for 15 years. It was just wonderful when I could go to the city and say, this has been my inspiration, and they agreed that it was a good idea. And Naomi, with 
obviously the Serpentine Pavilion is connected to one institution. Um, this space is within the arts precinct, the South Bank Arts Precinct. Mm. Is that something that you saw uh, as relevant or you... How did the, you deal yeah. with that problem? Definitely the South Bank Arts Precinct um, is highly relevant for all of us in Melbourne. I worked on some of the original plans that have been done over the last three or four years um, on that South Bank Arts Precinct, which of course goes from um, Federation Square all the way down around the Melbourne Recital Centre, down past Acker, down to Kingsway, and that's considered to be the South Bank Arts Precinct, and there have been plans for the last... 30 years, unfortunately, to develop that entire precinct. Um, we do have magnificent infrastructure here, but we certainly need to take it much further down there. Um, so uh, it was very important to me that it be um, connected to this cultural precinct. It was also important that it be connected to public transport. 58,000 people walk across that Flinders Street Bridge every day. It was very important that we be a focal point the garden inspiration um, obviously comes from the Serpentine as well um, and our love of gardens and not being attached to a particular institution allowed us to collaborate with a myriad of people and as you probably heard us say, we've got 130 collaborators across a multitude of cultural institutions, educational institutions as well. So that was very exciting and allowed us to spread our wings a lot further than we probably could have had we been attached to one institution. Sean, you've um, said how your inspiration is derived from the Australian vernacular, from uh, verandas, shearers' sheds, barns and the outback. I wonder if you could elaborate on the starting point for your architectural design of M Pavilion. Oh, that's a big question at the end of a long day. Um, <laughs> There's probably a PhD in that, but I'm not going to give you that tonight. Uh, the discussion around placemaking in, in the context of the park is, is an interesting one, and it kind of addresses that point, because uh, we're in a garden just like the, the garden that the Serpentine exists in that has serious controls over it, um, I was explaining to an architecture student just before that the whole of this site's contaminated. That's why there are beautiful grassy mounds just over there. Don't worry, no, no one's turning green as we speak. Yet. We're here for four months. Um, there's a Heritage, Heritage Victoria control over these gardens, so everything that we did had to comply with their requirements and so on and so on and so on. And so initially it's as much about um, placemaking in the broader context and then... The, the, the question after that is, well, what makes a place in the Australian context and what, what's something that's uh, easily identifiable to most Australians? And the, the hay shed on the, on the distant horizon and the, the shearer's shed and, and the, the barn and that sort of thing are, are reasonably deeply seated in our DNA. And so I, I, I think that they're identifiable images and they're also um, realities, you know, the 21st in, in the hay shed, the, the wedding on the farm, that sort of thing uh, is stuff that we know of, we've attended um, and, and we get. And so the idea of, you know, people chewing the fat 
at the end of a hard day's work in a shed is is pretty clearly Australian and so to extend that into something that's a bit more sophisticated wasn't a, a quantum leap. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that's that's really where where this scheme came from. We were talking earlier on today about the fact that this was the third scheme. Um, the arts precinct is great, but this building is definitely um, in its own universe. It's not a satellite. Uh, it's not an adjunct to a, a, a bigger mothership. It's on its own, and that also creates all sorts of reasonably complex architectural problems that need to be solved in isolation in this case to make a, a pavilion that's self-sustaining in every sense of the word. And also, am I allowed to... Ch are we, can mm. we all chip in? <laughs> Please do. Uh, because, I mean, one of the things about the serpentine situation is that we are absolutely in a park, but the difference between our park and this park is that we have gates. And the gates are closed at 12 o'clock every night, which is extraordinary. There is literally, you can't drive through the park after 12 o'clock. And that means that it's a kind of pri public-private situation, whereas this is a beautiful park, but anybody can come here at any time of the day or night. So the, the brief is different, because it also has to be secure, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, and that's, um, that drove... The, the thinking that we needed to make a building that could close down at night and secure itself and be left with, with just one security guard and not two. Um, this city's got a real deep-seated problem with vandalism and graffiti and I've read online that people have threatened to form gangs to graffiti this building um, and so to secure it and to keep it safe th throughout its four months on the site is a real challenge as well. And so the idea of being able to close it up is, is poetic on one level, but fundamentally pragmatic on another. And Sean, I actually, you saw in the early scheme, there actually was an earlier scheme, wasn't there, of a, of a, of a tower. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you came back to, to this scheme? Or is that a secret? No, it's not a secret at all. No, that was a beautiful scheme and, and we were keen on that. Um, we did two schemes before this one. The tower was a direct reference to William Chambers' pagoda in the Kew Gardens in London, and, and that's the the <coughs> excuse me first year architecture students exemplar project when learning about the, the um, archetype of folly and how it exists in 18th century landscape design. So his design was a 50 metre high timber structure that exists purely for its own sake to to explain the idea of folly um, in that era of landscape architecture. Um, Greek temples, Roman temples, Bedouin tents, Chinese pagodas were brought into the landscape um, to literally transport architecture from other parts of the world and, and place them in, in terms of architect, uh, landscape architects like Capability Brown in, in the picturesque so that they were glimpsed in the distance in... Um, um, highly sophisticated landscape design. So we, when we, when Naomi first started speaking to my office, we said, let's do a William Chambers Pagoda and do, a, we said, a 60-metre tower. So we designed a circular structure, truncated cone. I'd just uh, come back from Rome and seen the Pantheon again for the first time in 25 years so that the top of the cone was an oculus 
And I said to Naomi, wouldn't it be fantastic? It'd be highly visual, um, dramatic in the in the landscape, and and the Oculus would just track track the course of the sun on side on the inside curved surface of the the cone. And I can't really repeat what she said. <laughs> But the polite, the polite version is that um, it probably wasn't going to sustain events like the one we're, we're in right now. And from there we took inspiration from Peter Zumpter's Serpentine Pavilion of 2010, I think, maybe, I can't remember. And, and Peter created gardens within a structure, so a garden within a garden, and we like that idea as well, so we did a donut, a circular building again with a... Central Courtyard, the idea of which was to bring desert sand from the outback and put it inside the courtyard. But um, the reaction to that was was equally unpleasant. Not true. And and I'm sure by by that stage Naomi was having serious doubts about what she'd gotten herself in for. So pragmatism always rules the day in architecture. The building has to work... As, as well as be beautiful. And so this this project is about prefabrication because we have to pack this building up and move it to another site and give it another life. So there are pragmatics there. I mentioned the threat of graffiti and, and vandalism and so there are pragmatics there. And, and there were also issues around the kit of parts, weren't there? Yeah, we we, we talked about, um, you know, the, the chairs you're sitting on we designed and... We made you can see the the furniture's mobile, so that the space can be configured and reconfigured easily. So they're all they're all good things for architects to have to deal with because it forces us to stop dreaming about sixty meter truncated cones and 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 make real buildings. And also, we didn't have a long stay in the park either. You know, we couldn't build for a long period of time. No, that's a tricky that's a tricky part of the commission because we're here for a short time, but we're somewhere else for a long time. So. The building has to be good short term, easily easily packed and transported, and then good long term, and that's actually really challenging. It's much easier when you're building a building to make finite decisions about every component and, and then walk away at the end of it. To have to come back and, and revisit the transportation of a building is a much more complex problem. Yeah. But it's also exciting because this whole idea that architecture is immovable, which of course it is on the one hand, on the other hand, in this particular case, in the Serpentine's case, it's not. And a lot of discussion has centred around the Serpentine pavilions about the, the, the way the buildings or the structures touch the ground. And that, as an architectural concept, seems to be a very, it's really fundamental to the pavilions. So we've had criticism about some of my, the, the pavilions that actually, in fact, I like the most. Um, because they feel really rooted rather mm. than lightly touching. And this pavilion is incredible for a number of different reasons, but one of them is that it lightly touches the ground. And also I think what's interesting about it is that it, it's a kind of choreography, both near me by commissioning Sean and Sean by articulating the different, um, what, what do you call them, flaps, elevations, cantilevered, Whatever. John Denton, the former government architect and my landlord, called them grey flappy things. Okay, that will do. The great flappy things. Grey flappy things. Oh, grey flappy yeah. things. Um, well, even the great grey flappy things. 
Um, I don't mind they, that. I respect John's opinion on, <laughs> on most things. Uh, they, they really have a life of their own, and that one of the things about a structure like this is how it's animated. So it's animated by the talks and discussions that take place in it. It's animated by the way people move around the furniture. It's animated by the way people engage with it, how they spend time here, how they walk around it, but also principally how the building moves. And it moves, of course, in the long term by going somewhere else, but it moves on a daily basis yeah. by the way it's articulated. Mm. The opening ceremony. It was literally opening. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's one of the tricks that we use in our buildings. The the great Australian landscape architect Edna Walling had a, a f fantastic saying. She she said only fools and children comment on unfinished work, and it was a, a a saying that she used over and over with clients who got a bit anxious about things. The nice thing about this building is that it, it if if you're foolish enough to comment on it before it's opened then you can be deceived into believing that it's reasonably benign if you're intelligent enough to avoid that temptation and comment on it after you've seen it in action, then it's, it's a, a very dynamic thing. I just wonder if we could revisit, Sean, your comment about placemaking and positioning a temporary pavilion in a parkland habitat. And Naomi, I wanted to ask you about your sort of unwavering desire to place M Pavilion in Queen Victoria Gardens and this was really the only site that you envisage for the pavilion and also the legacy of uh, John Truscott's Botanica and Chinese Tea House. Well, I guess that's why the Lord Mayor called me the cashmere steamroller. <laughs> um, but um, I, I really felt very, very strongly. I'd read about John Truscott. Obviously, the interior of the art centre has been done by him. He won awards for his costume design and set design. And there's a very small foundation called the John Truscott Foundation in his honour. Um, in 1989 and 1991, he was the director of the Spoleto Melbourne Festival. And um, he decided that this was the right place for um, three temporary pavilions, as you said. So there was a Chinese tea house, Botanica 1 and Botanica 2. Botanica 1 and 2 were both designed by Kevin O'Neill and the young horticulturalist Paul Bangay, who's actually done all of the garden beds outside here alongside in commemoration of John Truscott. So it was very, very important to me that we had the heritage of this site in exactly the same spot um, as John Truscott placed his own. And I think it was also important to the city to have this heritage here so that they actually did have a precedent. And I'm sure Sam can tell us that we needed 37 permits or something like that to actually take this site. And we did need an Act of Parliament as well to be able to use it again. And John Truscott wrote about those pains that he went through. Um, so it was really about the heritage of this site. And then the connection to the city was very important to me. Obviously, again, the connection to the South Bank Arts Precinct. And I always felt that the South Bank Arts Precinct needed to be on both sides of St Kilda Road. And the, there's a great focus on the other side of St Kilda Road and then moving down around Sturt Street. But there's a real opportunity to um, support this area with something cultural as well. So it was really um, the obvious place, having all that heritage as well. 
um, when we've done some research, it's actually, it's interesting that this park's relatively new. We sort of think of, I mean, Melbourne is relatively new, um, uh, 1835, uh, but a lot of the gardens were laid out um, in the 19th century. This garden was laid out actually in the 20th century in the very, uh, to commemorate, of course, Queen Victoria, who died in 1901. And this garden was made in 1905. So prior to that, obviously it ha was, had a lot of meaning to uh, um, the original um, custodians or original owners of the, of the site. It was a swampland. People came here and met. Um, but also then it was used very much almost as a, as a, um, it was a, ca a camping ground. It was a, uh, it was just sort of a messy space. And then so in 1905, it, it turns into this beautiful garden. Um, also, of course, it uh, beautifully links to another great pavilion in Melbourne, um, the Meyer, uh, Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, uh, which I think is 1959. Um, but one of the things that we thought would be interesting, Sean, is just to talk about um, that sense of the building in landscape. Is there, I mean, obviously you've looked at other pavilions or thought about other pavilions in landscapes? Uh, we think about landscape a lot in the office and, and I wrote um, an essay, I don't know, six or seven years ago for Topos, the German landscape architecture publication and I described architecture as, as simply something that interrupts landscape and that, um, that our, the, the interest in the office with our architecture, particularly when we get to work um, outside of, of the cityscape, is very much along those lines that we're, we're making a, 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 an intervention or an interruption that is sensitive to the geography of the place as much as anything. So I, to illustrate that in the Australian condition, I often use... Um, Fred Williams, whose beautiful etchings uh, of the landscape where the suggestion of, of the Australian condition is, is a scratchy one. It's a harsh one and a, and a brutal one. And then he explains the topography simply by either a horizontal line for the flatness or a diagonal line if it's a sloping site. And his, his etching hillside at Listerfield is is spectacular in that sense because he simply takes the horizon line and tips it slightly. And Australia is a very flat place and any relief, any topographical relief is, is dramatic as a result. So situating buildings in that s setting is, is challenging but it's also um, enormously pleasurable because uh, we, we get to work on ground that has never been worked on before. And so the, the idea of landscape here is vastly different from Europe where if you dig deep enough you'll either find Vikings or Romans mm -hmm. and, uh, and we don't have that problem. We have a, a vast country with a lot of space and, and a lot of it's never been touched. So the landscape becomes a, a different thing and a slightly more precious thing. And so the buildings that we do contemplate that the condition here is obviously a constructed one, but the the um, argument between a constructed European landscape and, and the condition of the outback, as Patrick White describes it in The Tree of Man, is a really nice dichotomy and one that we've tried to exploit with this project. 
And Julie. for those of you who are smart enough to know, I didn't answer Robert's question at all then. <laughs> but you did answer. But you <laughs> said we noticed. Very nice. Um, Julia, you actually look after a number of buildings in landscape. Obviously, the Serpentine Gallery was a tea room um, in Hyde Park. Uh, you've just, uh, you've recently uh, restored the Sackler, which is now the Sackler Gallery, which was a, an old uh, ammunition ammunition store. Mm. You've built uh, a new restaurant, uh, Zaha Hadid's restaurant, also in a park, um, and the pavilions are in the park. So obviously, parks uh, represent something quite magical to you. Well, I think that in a former life, I was a, um, I worked in construction because um, it's almost there's something wrong if we're not making something. And I think the interesting thing about architecture, uh, we're not architects, obviously, it's but we're making something. And that dialogue that we have with architects is really fascinating because it's different to working with artists. And we commission, we work on the same principle of, of working with architects as we do with artists. So we commission them and the process is the same. The difference with architects is that you're talking about something that which will come into being and with an artist you don't really you talk about the work they might be making as a commission but it's not so there isn't a sort of function to it there's not the same discussion about form so it's it's an incredible privilege it's the thing that I suppose I enjoy most about my job and um, I haven't answered your question either what is it? <laughs> <laughs> I got lost in the reverie of working with architects, so ask me again. I think your response was much more interesting. It was really just, I suppose, the, what, what different elements are there about building in a, in a garden? Uh, is there anything particular? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, firstly, when we do our pavilions, I mean, obviously permanent buildings of which the renovation of the Serpentine Gallery in 96 to 98 and the renovation, which Zaha did, the renovation of the, um, the ammunition part, the existing building, as well as doing an extension, um, they are all subject to all the planning permissions, and you, as you might imagine. But the pavilions, there's no different to doing a temporary structure, the pavilion, to a permanent one. So we have to get the same permissions as we would a permanent building. Now that to all of you who are involved in construction, you know exactly what that means. There is a myriad of health and safety, and oh, I'm, I mean, health and safety is always much cited, but planning to permission, it's everything, fire, everything. Mm. So um, now we're quite cheerful about it. You know, it's like, here, here we go again. <laughs> and these are our friends, and it's important they're our friends because they have the power to both shut us down if they don't like what we're doing and it doesn't meet approvals, and also they have the power to say no. And we're very, very conscious of that. And I think Britain, I don't know about here in Australia, they're incredibly, um, cons not conservative is not the right word, they're incredibly um, uh, rigorous about all those kind of permissions. It's, it's really onerous. It's onerous whether you build permanently or it's an onerous if you build on a temporary capacity. Mm. It's onerous here too. <laughs> <laughs> one, yeah. of the, one of the beautiful things, I suppose, about um, the pavilion is uh, the way in which, I mean, as Julia pointed out, Melbourne loves talking about the weather. But yes. being outside in a garden 
in a room like this, you're constantly aware of the light, of the weather. You know, you can see the trees, you can see the sky, um, and you also have to dress appropriately. So you're not living in that sort of air-conditioned, comf comfortable world. Um, Naomi, was there any sense of, for this project, I mean, of getting people out into the world and to look at the world anew? Can you repeat the question? I suppose just that, was there a sense about putting a building in a garden? Was it about um, people thinking about the city differently or thinking about the garden differently? Um, I was really interested in the idea of a temporary structure. Um, I was really interested about doing it in a garden and I was really interested about the capacity to program differently and ask different questions and to have a much more open format than I think we do have in institutions which are sometimes restricted. Mm. So it was more about the openness of this type of structure and the things that we could do in here um, with lots of people doing different things. I, I think that's it's an interesting question because it, it raises other issues that are more generally about architecture in the 21st century, possibly less a little bit about a project like this one, but we have become so comfortable and we live in, in 22 degrees Celsius most of the time and a, a, a friend who's a, a Japanese friend who's a sculptor said to me one day, without the heat you can't appreciate the cold and without the cold you won't understand the heat. And we've done a few houses now for people who live in that conditioned climate for most of their their working life. And they actually have requested that they have buildings where they can rehumanise themselves by, by feeling the heat and feeling the cold. And those two projects that I'm particularly thinking of are the Glenburn House and St Andrews Beach House where to get from the public realm of the building to the private realm of the building, you actually have to go outside and go back inside again. And for some of you, that might evoke the, the good old dunny in the backyard, but it, it's an interesting request that, that we've actually got, gotten to a point where we want to undo some of what we've done to make ourselves quite so comfortable again. And, and a pavilion like this does that because we have no way of controlling the weather and we have no way of warming it up or cooling it down. So the only concession to that in, in, in this thing is, is the notion of a, a, an operable shade skin that can reduce solar radiation and filter light. But I think that's an interesting commentary on the, the, the state of play, that we've reached a point where we actually want to go backwards to go forwards again. And, uh, and, and, and in the architecture that we produce in the office, that's a... It's a, a high up in our consciousness at the moment. But I think that something else happens because the relationship to this pavilion, to the gardens, is about the same, the, the small step that you have to step into to get into this space is about the same height as the difference between the exhibition galleries at the Serpentine and the paths, the public path, the park outside. And so... As I'm sitting here, I'm looking at this incredible film, in inverted commas, and promenade that's going on behind the heads of these people at the back. So I'm looking at that in a completely different way than I would if I was just somebody standing in the park, because it's framed differently. 
So what Sean has done in this very interesting way is to use a number of framing devices to, for us to look at the, the park, and which can, you know, and they're also highly articulated. So if I come here today, it's not going to be the same if I come tomorrow, and the morning's not going to be the same as the evening, and so on. So I think that's very, very fascinating, that kind of engagement of the people inside with those outside and what it's like to be inside but also outside. So there all those kind of very simple, not conundrums exactly, but that, those simple dynamics which are quite subtle, but you know how we view the world and our place in it is part of what architecture and art does. And um, this is very successful, I think, in, in that respect. And that was one of the other reasons why the city was so keen for us to reuse this park is because, according to Rob Adams, the head of city design, this is the least utilised park in Victoria. Mm. Mm. So it's very interesting now to have something that attracts people to this park again. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how people use it. I liked, um, I liked what you said then, Julia, about the framed view. The one of the things that I've studied a lot over a long time now, because I'm getting old, is um, the impact that the veranda has had on colonial, on British architecture. So, colonial architecture, when when Britain ruled the waves and and colonised India and Africa and America and Australia, they brought a Georgian architecture that was fundamentally inappropriate f for the climates, and the veranda became a thing that was a climate-modifying device attached to the edge of those buildings. And you see that those examples in differing forms in all of those continents. From an architectural point of view, veranda space is really interesting because it's unprogrammed. It's fluid without any particular function. And yet it has this remarkable capacity in the Australian condition. Think of the Queenslander of, of being um, surrounded by insect screen, then it becomes a sleep-out or an outdoor living space, uh, a place to have an evening meal, and it's perimeter space. So you do end up occupying the edge of the building and viewing away from the building, often past posts through a frame space to the landscape. So that's that's very conscious in this building. That's not a not a not a mistake or an accident. That's deliberate. And you're quite right, and it's probably enhanced by a crowd of people, but it's it's actually really nice sitting here looking that way because there's this sort of beautiful fluidity going on at peak hour in St Kilda Road that's captured in a nice way. So that's where that stuff comes from, and there's almost enough in, in that one architectural device to, to um, fashion an entire career around if you look really closely at it because regionally the veranda exists in countries like Japan, originally in China, and um, the, the Japanese veranda is also a climate-moderating space. It's a space where you remove shoes. It's a place for tea ceremonies, for flower arranging and so on. And so caught in, in the two bookends of the region is, is a device that's common to two completely different cultures and with two completely different histories. And coincidentally, they're both used in similar ways. And I think that's fascinating. And if, if Australia sensibly in the 21st century embraces the fact that we're actually part of a region known as Southeast Asia, then that's also very relevant um, ground for research.
Sorry. And also, as a visitor to uh, Melbourne, I mean, what's remarkable and fascinating to me is this, this idea of the veranda, which is so present in the city. So you've got built contemporary buildings on the one hand that probably ignore the idea of the veranda, and then you've got all the historical buildings that don't, and the decoration that goes with it. Now, I know that's not news to any of you because you live here, but it's certainly a kind of fascinating thing to me because it's like drawing on the one hand, which is the historical buildings, was that very intricate ironwork, and then on the other kind of facades which have no decoration. Mm. It's, it's, um, it's a wonderful kind of play, really. Yeah, we, we, we spent some time with, um, with Glenn Merkett uh, today and yesterday, and... and we, we had some fairly robust discussions about appropriateness and architecture and architecture that responds, in, responds intelligently to climate and context. And Glenn's a very good geographer. He understands the topography and geography of the context within which he's building, and the buildings respond accordingly. And that's, that's good architecture. So in Australia, where we've got, you know, two, two and a half, three thousand kilometres of coastline on the east coast from from Tasmania where the Georgian building can actually survive um, to far north Queensland where it definitely can't. There's an awful lot of stuff in between that has to be intelligently thought out and worked out and what happened originally was that we, we transplanted architecture and used the same stuff everywhere and what we're seeing as Robert said in a very young history is architecture that's now more place specific across the country and that that alone is a really interesting evolution in our architecture and Glenn was probably at the vanguard of that thinking. wonder if we could segue from Glenn Merkett to Robin Boyd's 1960 text The Australian Ugliness which will be read in the pavilion every day at noon <laughs> by various people and he writes about the art of shaping the human environment as an intellectual, ethical and emotional exercise. Would everyone like to comment on...? Go for it, Sean. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's right. You know, the, the imagined landscape for an architect is usually the, the utopian one where everything is, is perfect and wonderful and architects... Um, do their best work when they become childlike and you know Gaston Bacillard has written a lot about that that we have to imagine the pleasure of, of being a child again and the, the notion of discovery for the first time and, and that abstract space that not real space that's the imagination of the architect is a very fragile one and, and yet we keep going there because that's what gives our architecture its life and its freshness um, and that's vastly different from the reality of landscape and site which are different things and we talked about that earlier about the pragmatics of a site like this one. So for example uh, um, Hayley and I were here this morning to help get the first day up and going and we stood back and about a dozen people came and uh, the building was closed and looking very sedate and then uh, we opened it for the ABC to film and I looked around and every single person watching it opening had a smile on their face 
And it was incredibly satisfying to see because what architects want is they, they want you to feel good. They want you to feel happy and they want you to be touched and moved in a way that normally you wouldn't be. And if you can engage with a building on that level, then suddenly you race back to your childhood and you remember the first time you saw something or the first time you tasted something or the first time you experienced something and the thrill that comes with that. And if we can do that with our buildings, then we're, we're probably making architecture. Well, you're making lots of people smile. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I think this is perhaps a moment to talk about, um, to bring it down to, to put another kind of perspective on it, is about this idea of dreaming, which of course is absolutely key for any uh, artistic practice, mm. but also this fascinating relationship between the client and the architect. Because um, the client, Naomi, is just such a wonderful example of this and visionary. She's paid great tribute to the Serpentine, but really it's for all of us to be paying great tribute to you. Because if it wasn't for your inspiration, this wouldn't have happened. But those discussions that I have with the architects, and we've worked with some of the greatest names in architecture, but also over the last two years, architects who would be probably described as emerging insofar as they built but not hugely. They're known within the profession but not beyond the profession, um, namely Su Fujimoto and Smilian Radic uh, from Japan and Chile re uh, respectively. But that conversation and the conversations that you had turned your idea, your dreaming, which is incredibly important, into a reality. So that's how we come to be sitting here and the thing is finished and you know, we're all happy and you're all having a good time and it will continue to be operating in a, an amazing way for four months. So I think that kind of dynamic, which is about dreaming on the one hand and then about kind of shaping something on the other is really part of the process that shouldn't be underestimated as playing a really key and significant role. Yeah, I think that you touched on that yesterday when you spoke, Julia, that need for intimacy between the client and the architect is, is fundamental. So you can't... Uh, this, is, this, this is a sensitive subject for all architects, but making a, making a piece of architecture is actually a really hard thing to do. It's very tough, and you have to be built pretty tough to do it. Uh, and, and some of us are tougher than others. But in all of that brutality that is constructing, you also have to stay in touch with the soft part of you that is fragile and that can be damaged and hurt easily so that you can have that conversation and dialogue with your client. And you can't... I've, I've been quoted often as saying, great clients make great architects. You cannot do that as an architect without this, the, the confidence... Of, of, of your client and I mean and by that I mean the willingness to to exchange ideas on a far more intimate level than you would normally do in conversation and that's where the architect as artist comes to the surface the architect as as the tough person dealing with the, the brutality of building is, a, is another component it's what makes us so complicated and what makes so many of us so damaged but that's just the, the nature of the the beast, unfortunately, but if you lose touch with that, lose touch with that gentle side, you'll never make architecture. 
because you'll never be able to have the relationship with the client. And our best buildings have come that way without, without hesitation, I'd say that. And I think for me the great element, the greatest element was trust. And from the day you start working, you have to absolutely trust your architect that he's going to, he or she is going to deliver exactly what is going to be a beautiful creation. I think Sean and I had that trust from the very, very beginning. So I think that's why essentially it worked incredibly well. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't think there was a moment's hesitation, not from our side, and that's great. And, you know, those of you who know the Design Hub will know that um, Margaret Gardner, the Vice-Chancellor then of RMIT, was, you know, cut out of the same cloth, excuse me, um, the Lord Mayor's doing something about our plane trees, I heard. But, <laughs> um, that willingness to, um, to make a leap of faith with your architect, to run to the edge of the cliff and jump. And I mentioned yesterday at some point in conversation, you know, Kant's definition of creative genius was that it must have within it a leap of faith or it won't happen. And so... Architectures, architectures about that because the other the other thing that goes with trust is risk, and we've become this terribly risk averse place. We're, we're terrified of everything. It, it's really sad. And you know, Bernard Schumi said once, the first rule of architecture is to break it. So architects want to break the rules. We want to take the risks, and we want to do the things that. Most people would look at and say, you've got to be crazy. And you can't do that. Well, I can't do that independently of, of anyone. I need a client to be prepared to do that. Um, Julia t touched on regulations. I can tell you that we had completed all of the re-turfing around the building, which was complex in itself, and our risk assessor came down and we had a step that was a 210 millimetre step, so this much higher than regulations allowed onto grass and we had to change it back to 190 millimetres. So we had to re-turf that corner of, the, corner of the pavilion. Imagine dealing with that when you're wanting to soar and take risks. It's a complex art form at the best of times. I thought it might be interesting to talk about... Um in terms of architects, the three, three architects, two architects that have done the Serpentine Pavilion recently, Sufu Jumato and um, Similian Radic. Radic. And then also with Sean. I am looking at those three buildings. I see them as very much about experience. <coughs> I mean, they're buildings which are created. I think that each of those... Fujimoto's was the one which looked like a cloud. Uh, people could walk on the building, so you climbed up on the building. Um, the most recent one, uh, Bayrajik, is a building that you walk in and you really have to be inside the building to experience because the light comes through the walls. There's also a central hole in it which lights the, the ground below you. So in, in a way, the graphic of the building, just the, the photograph it, doesn't explain it. And I think this building is also like that because it will always be different. Um, and so those, I think, the three architects have created experiences rather than just a graphic. Um, and perhaps, Julia, this, I think, is, is this something which I think is also happen happening in contemporary art. Artists are increasingly wanting to create an experience for their audience. Well, in a way, I don't think... Architecture can be anything other than an experience, because um, it's the nature of the beast. And in this 
particular pavilion, um, of course, the experience is the choreography, the fact that it moves. And it moves in a very particular way. Art moves, too. There are all sorts of examples of um, Calder, Alexander Calder, an artist from history, a sculptor, um, to maybe Philippe Pereno, uh, a French artist, contemporary artist, whose, whose work um, moves. And indeed, there's a recent collaboration between Philippe Pereno and Tina Segal in Arles at the moment, whereby, and this is for the architects amongst you, is completely and utterly fascinating because it's how, how they're displaying the models of Frank Gehry. Now, the reason we don't do exhibitions of architecture in the gallery is because I personally find those kind of exhibitions impossible to read. I can't read a model. I can't imagine what it's like to be in that space. I can't read an architectural drawing. And if I look at a photograph, it's like great, but it only gives me 10% of the story. And what Philippe and uh, Tina Segal did, which was, is unbelievably brilliant, is that they have choreographed these Frank Gehry models to move. And so they literally move around this warehouse kind of size space, and they move. I mean, they're on trolleys, and they, you know, sometimes they're going fast, and you think, God, they're going to crash. Sometimes they're going s slower. And then there's the lighting, which Philippe's orchestrated. So I think... One of the things that's so interesting about the evolution of all the art forms is how they change and how repetition um, necessitates invention because to repeat the same thing over and over again is kind of boring if you're, if you're an artist, architect, designer because you want to do something different. You want to do something new. You need to expand the boundaries, otherwise you're maybe inhabiting a terrain that other people might have done better than you, or at least they may have been done before. So I think that, that whole notion of experience is a very, very interesting one. Um, and, you know, it can be the experience, which is a kind of static experience that we're having now. This structure is being used in a very different way from uh, when people come and take coffee and sit down on a chair or just don't do anything. They just come in and say, oh, my goodness, what's this? It wasn't here yesterday or the week, week ago. Um, so I suppose what I would say is that every, every pavilion is used in a different way. Jean Nouvel's pavilion was specifically about play. So there were ping-pong tables, there were... Um, all sorts of other games that were chess that was it was devoted to play but that kind of experience of movement is also when I look outside and I see I'm sitting still and all those people behind the back row there are moving at a different pace and the cars are moving in a different pace so it's a slightly oblique answer but it's kind of what I'm thinking about at the moment um, to extend on that, the, every, every architect, regardless of their style, and in Melbourne we get very hung up on style, which is a waste of time as an argument, um, is motivated by those emotional reactions that I described before. But I can't put on a drawing, um, the visitor to this building must feel happy the visitor, visitor of this building must feel excited. 
the user of the building must feel joy in the morning. Um, they're abstract things. The role of the architect is to encapsulate those abstract things in a, a physical thing, and the physical thing involves the medium of building. And so we say in the office that the architecture actually exists in the person who's experiencing it. Architecture is a human thing, that um, construction is a technical thing, and good architects, regardless of their style, understand that and they manipulate the technical thing to ensure the emotional thing. And um, I've, I've never been to a serpentine pavilion in my life. I've never seen one in the flesh, but I can tell, regardless of the style of all of the eminent architects who, who've produced a pavilion, that their agenda is to create those reactions, those very human reactions of delight, wonder, joy, happiness, excitement. Uh, and they, they each do it in their own way. But, but the underlying agenda is probably the same, I suspect. Well, we've discussed the, I guess, the ambience of buildings and the emotional resonances that Sean's just outlined. Maybe it's some kind of psychogeography of place. But this might be a good opportunity to ask questions um, from the audience. Do we have any urgent questions? Thanks, Natalie. Um, I was just thinking about Sean's idea. Well, this is a question for Julia, but maybe riffing off Sean's idea before about taking a step backwards to take a step forwards. And you've worked on so many pavilions now. Um, some of them are obviously going to be more successful than others. So what are the things that you um, judge those successes on? Like what, what, are, what makes your favourite pavilions your favourite pavilion? Well, it's a question that I'm asked quite regularly, as you might imagine, about which is my favourite pavilion, and I always have the same answer, which is the one, well, the one that is, our, is installed now. <laughs> yes. um, partly because the investment is massive, and because the risk is not to be underestimated is huge. I mean, we've done it enough now, but I remember for at least probably nine of them, I used to think, God, did we, we really done this before? Have we really realised a pavilion? because the odds are kind of against it uh, for all sorts of reasons. One, because, well, I won't go through the list, but there are a lot, there are a lot of reasons. So um, I suppose in the end it's the form, and that's the beginning. The design is the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. And it's our job to do everything we can to support the architect to realise the best possible structure that they can possibly realise. And also bring it to the top of their agenda because we're asking people, we pay them a stipend. Now, in Britain, everybody knows a stipend is absolutely virtually no money at all. So they're not doing it for money. And they are doing it for the opportunity, we hope. We give them the platform. And therefore... Our job is to do everything we can to realise their ambition. And so we push them very hard to be as ambitious as possible. And you know, sometimes, well, quite often it has to be trimmed back because it's a budgetary consideration. I can't answer your question, but I can say 
really, when it comes to it, I look at them in a formal way and I look at them in terms of design. And that often, um, you know, the Sufujimoto, for example, so it's recent, a recent example. I mean, you know, the, the perspex discs that were supposed to be the canopy that saved um, those people inside from rain, well, you know, they were just not entirely successful. <laughs> but um, if, uh, if the, que well, the question I ask myself is, well, would I prefer to have the design that he did with, with uh, rain coming through the roof or the canopy or a canopy which was more robust but that would have affected the design, then it has to be the former. And um, so those kind of decisions are really relatively clear for me. Then may not be entirely helpful to others who have to work in it or to use <laughs> it. And I'm very respectful and apologetic, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> in a in a radio interview, and I think it was 1958, Frank Lloyd Wright was asked not long not long before he died, asked what his favourite building was, and. He answered immediately, my next one. Yeah. So maybe that's the answer. Yeah, the next one's good. the favourite one. That's very good. I'll, I'll use that. Do we have any other questions? Okay. Now, I suppose the other thing uh, we could ask, uh, Naomi, you made a decision to gift the pavilion. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that's changed um, why you wanted didn't you have anywhere big enough to take it home <laughs> <laughs> no actually I didn't um, I think it was very it, it's very important when you're trying to do something new in a city to find compelling reasons why people can do them and one of the compelling reasons for the city of Melbourne was that I gifted it to them so that they could use it as, as a community space anywhere. And immediately Rob Adams and the Lord Mayor were very excited about that and Rob Adams named four places that he would love to add a community-based place, free form. Um, but as Sean said, it did make the challenges very difficult because this is a temporary pavilion. It is not a building built to last. How long do we guarantee it for? <laughs> Five thousand years. <laughs> it'll be a ruin. It'll be it'll be a, a, a new take on the hyperstyle hall, and and the archaeologists in five thousand years' time will go, "Gosh, this looks Greek." So it, it has provided us with uh, an extra layer of challenges to be able to take a temporary pavilion and replace it somewhere else, um, as Sean did say earlier. But it was, it was part of the reason for the city agreeing in the end to do it. So it was the mother, necessity was the mother of invention, really. All right. Well, I think there's such a lot of it here. I mean, part of the idea of the building is that it's a, a convivial space, a space where we can talk to one another. Uh, so why don't we have... We can stay and have a bit of a chat about the building. Um, but at this point, I'd like to thank the three speakers, Julia Payton-Jones. Thank you. Sean Godsell, the architect and Naomi Milgram.
and, and thank, thank you. you, Robert, and thank you, Natalie. Yes. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Yes. <laughs> and please come again. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and also, of course, um, our website, uh, which we're very proud of, has all the details of all the events that will be taking place in M Pavilion over the next four months. <laughs>